This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger, and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. In this episode, I'm meeting one of Canada's most versatile performers and the undisputed king of Canadian podcasting, Jonathan Tollins. The actor, director, producer, writer, podcast host, musician and television personality began his career at 15 when he was cast as the host of the hit youth show Street Sense. Just seven years later, he created, wrote, co-produced and hosted Jonovision, a wildly successful teen talk show that aired for five years and received seven prestigious Gemini Awards. But he's perhaps best known for his ingenious 10-year run with the Trailer Park Boys playing J-Rock, and more recently for his role as Mr. Cheely, the vice principal in Mr. D. He's also played roles in Jason Priestley's hit show Call Me Fitz, Degrassi The Next Generation, Game On, and he wrote seven episodes for the global comedy sensation that is Letterkenny. His success has also translated into the podcast world. He and Jeremy Taggart created Taggart and Torrens, a podcast that has been downloaded more than four million times and received a Canadian Comedy Award for Best Audio Programme in 2018. Its success has also led to a best-selling book and album. It's January 2021. We are a year into the global pandemic, and normally right now, Jonathan and I would be on the road, performing somewhere in the world. Instead, we are both on our makeshift stages in our DIY studios at home. He in rural Nova Scotia, me in rural New Brunswick. Let's do this. Jonathan, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm very good indeed. Um, this is very exciting. I am very um, honored to be talking with you. Um, the pleasure is entirely mine. I, I have so many questions for you, um, but <laughs> oh. I'll, I'll wait to turn the tables on you until uh, I've gotten my feet wet with a few of your questions. <laughs> okay, okay. Yes, it's supposed to be me asking you questions, but I am uh, amenable to everything. Um, it's funny, we, we started this podcast, as a lot of podcasts did during the early days of lockdown. And it was interesting because we, we, we kind of felt, oh, we shouldn't talk too much about COVID or lockdowns because that's going to uh, not be a thing anymore. But here we are a year later and it's still a thing. So uh, I have to start by asking, uh, how are you coping and, and how have you been uh, evolving during this time? Well, um, I think like everyone, I feel like uh, the roadrunner a little bit, uh, you know, runs off the cliff and his legs are still moving with no ground underneath him. Um, I do a lot of corporate hosting in the States. So typically this Q1, which is kind of January to April, I would be on the road pretty hard, mostly in Vegas. In fact, last February, I was there three weeks in a row um, and kind of come home on the red eye Thursday night and leave again Sunday morning. So the first thing is I'm around more and I love that. Um, I've in fact been spoiled and uh, low key dreading when the world opens again and 
I have to leave my family. I found my circle has gotten so small, in fact, that if I go um, to Truro for groceries, which is about five minutes away, I have this internal clock ticking and thinking, oh, I, I, I'd best get home. <laughs> um, yes. the, the work from home aspect of it, as I'm sure has been your experience, too, I had to kind of figure out our house is pretty open. So uh, for the first while, if I was working, um, people felt the need to be sequestered in uh, rooms uh, as far away as possible. I uh, actually bought a shed and put it in my backyard and got its own dedicated internet line, which, as you know, in rural Canada is enough of a challenge. So once I kind of cracked that nut, it's been great. Yeah, it's I mean, it's an incredible thing. I mean, who could have predicted that, that this would ever be? possible because i mean doing the doing the job that we do it naturally means traditionally being away being on the road and, and there are and of course you know there's plenty of people that will say that, it, that it's not the same and of, and of course it's it's very different but when you are people like you and i who as much as we love our jobs we also love our families and we love being at home this is in some ways a, a very bizarre and strange gift it is. And all the advice I've ever gotten about parenting has to do with how fast it goes by. And this was really a chance to slow it down. There's also uh, in this part of Canada, we're kind of sheepish and self-deprecating by nature, as you know. And I haven't figured out what the word is for uh, the sheepishness I feel around having enjoyed this time so much. Um, but I know, I know that hasn't been everyone's experience, but we loved homeschooling the girls we did FaceTime calls with their grandparents who taught subjects that they knew. Their aunts taught subjects over FaceTime. It was kind of a really nice bonding experience for us. And again, I'm I'm optimistic to a fault. And I know, you know, if you have twin two-year-old boys, that's probably not the case for you. Um, but I, I have really enjoyed it. The, the one kind of strange thing that I know you know better than most is... Uh, doing these corporate gigs, a lot of it is comedy based and I'll walk in the house, which is a luxury. And my wife will say, how did it go? And I'll, I'll say, I have no idea. Like you're kind of right. putting jokes out into the ether. And I don't know if it's your instinct too. When you don't get the laughter back, your instinct is to just bail and pick up the pace. Like this isn't landing for whatever reason. So it took me uh, a little bit to get comfortable enough with the material and think, well, I, I assume people are laughing the same as they would in a live environment. So I just have to trust. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. And you kind of realize one of the selling points, actually, of these virtual gigs is that in the space of an hour, the audience uh, are getting probably double the number of jokes because traditionally in a live environment, a laugh can last 15, 20 seconds. But you never leave 15, 20 seconds in a virtual gig. Oh, that's you, true. You leave about five. So you're packing in so much more material. So it's, I mean, it's double the number of laughs and they don't have to leave their homes. Exactly. The dream. I had, like, from... <laughs> from an economic standpoint, um, in in the early days, I was so happy to have the opportunity to work from home. I kind of cut my rate. Like I, I'm just right. happy to have yes. the gig. I'm gonna. Um, it's a half a day rate because I'm not uh, away from home, and I'm just happy to do it. I don't know yeah. if the economics of it work quite as well as the geography does. <laughs> we will see. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, also, I mean, I found that even though I was cutting my rate dr- dramatically, I was clearly, even though the the income was down, the expenses were way down because I wasn't eating sushi three times a day like I do when I'm on the road because I'm miserable and need to be cheered up. I'm not drinking half the night, so it, it, whatever I, whatever was kind of being reduced from the fee was also being massively taken away out of the expense budget. Okay, the history books will show <laughs> that you were way ahead of the curve on this. But I read an interesting thread recently about the kind of long term um, ripples in the wake of COVID. And it had to do with the work from home experience and how employers are worried that their employees will not generate productivity at the same level if they're not in the office. This thread suggested otherwise, that people will, in fact, work more because the lines are so blurred between when work is finished and when it starts. You'll probably pick up your phone and send emails all night, for example. But the thing that's different is, first of all, you can do it from anywhere, like St. John. Secondly, you can go for a jog in the middle of the morning if you feel like it. Instead of appearing busy in your cubicle, you're actually being more productive and getting things done. But the nice side effect of this is that we will return to being more community-oriented because work is no longer a social outlet in the traditional sense. We will want to be joining clubs and joining sports teams and doing things like that. Is that what drove you to go to St. John? Good good, good question. And yes, I mean, I honestly, I mean, the, 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 the simple answer is yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing that, that drove me here was quality of life. It was I'd spent 13 years working in an office in London where that was the perfect example of, a, of an unproductive office environment where, where people are kind of bowling in at 10 p.m. You come in and then it's like, right, I'll go and get my breakfast now. And, and it was a, a company that was very adamant that you had to be in there. It was a creative environment. It was a, a, a magazine environment where even if you had a, a 3,000 word feature to write by 5 p.m. that day, they didn't want you doing it at home. It's you have to come in the office. And of course, you would come in the office and of course, it wouldn't get done because there are dozens of distractions ha- happening all of the time. Um, and of course, I mean, interestingly, th- this same magazine right now, it, back in London, they've uh, been in lockdown for, for close to a year. Everyone's working right. from home. Everything's working perfectly well. Um, so, I mean, t- to your point, uh, I feel like, and especially now being here where um, I got here for all of those reasons, for uh, to be in a place with a sense of community, to give my children an upbringing surrounded with, with water and, you know, to know our neighbours' names and all of those things. When I moved here, I obviously didn't know that I was going to be able to continue a creative field here. I mean, that's how much I wanted this lifestyle was I thought I was coming here to give it all up. Um, so it was a surprise to be able to do it full stop, but suddenly now to be in a situation where I can do, you know, four corporate gigs in a day for a company in in Alberta and London and, and, you know, wherever else, which of course wouldn't have been possible before because of geography. Um, it's bizarre. And, and, and like you said, I mean, it does, you know, there's no getting around the fact that, that, you know, this period is, is terrible and there's people suffering. And of course, I mean, I didn't always feel this way in March when lockdown happened. And there was a couple of weeks and, and months of absolute fear and terror. And are we going to have to, 
you know, downsized, what are we going to do? We're going to have to move back to England, live with my parents. So all, all of those fears that I think everyone had. Um, but but I also do think it's important to acknowledge, uh, as we have been just now, um, that, that there are some positives to this uh, environment, uh, uh, to this situation, including, of course, yeah, the effect on the environment as well as people's uh, health and mental health. Well, that's the thing. And and to return to this thread for a moment, it suggested that people mm. in big cities could save 24 days a year in commuting time. And I always say we, right. we pay so much attention to how we spend our money, but we don't give the same critical thought to how we spend our time. Imagine what you would right. do if you were gifted 24 extra days in a year. And when people say, oh, that must be hard in lower Onslow, Nova Scotia, to work in the entertainment business. <laughs> the truth yeah. is, in theory, the cost of living is such that I can coast for longer if I ever had to. Um, but That's... Trailer Park Boys was the first example for me of it doesn't matter where it's made or how it looks. If it's funny, it will find an audience and it will resonate and it will travel. And it's inconceivable that that show is now 20 years old and finding new life yet again on Netflix with teenage boys all over the world. It started on right. before you were here, a network called Showcase that no mm. one had ever heard of. So <laughs> that that was a great uh, lesson to me that if it's good, you can make it anywhere. Right. And and do you remember that kind of early stage of Training Football when 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 it was kind of being evolved and and when was the moment that you kind of realized that that it was going to to resonate with people because because it almost seems incredible now that it that it it happened especially then it it continues to be incredible that it happened and <laughs> and and we thought that it it felt funny to us but it also felt so insular and like such a unique patois to this group of friends who grew up in this tiny geographical radius and like to the point where we thought i don't know if people in new glasgow will get it cuz it's so kind of right. dartmouth so then yeah. it it was uh it landed with a thud critics were confounded by this thing it was before the mockumentary device was so widely used and accepted. Some people thought it was a documentary. It obviously, one of its um, most important characters was its aesthetic, which was, uh, um, you know, <laughs> low rent and handicap. And in fact, one of the struggles over the years as technology got better was that the show couldn't look as bad as it was supposed to. It was, it was one of the missteps of the first movie. It was shot on 35 millimeter and big, gorgeous... Uh, shots of the sky and stuff, it kind of lost its vibe. And um, right. in, in making the show, more stuff, uh, more thought goes into, for example, um, the premise. If the guys are breaking into a bank, it's a better shot to have the camera inside the bank and have them climb in the window and step over the camera. But if you're keeping the <laughs> device, the camera should, in fact, be following them into uh, the bank. More like more, We think about that stuff more right. than you would ever imagine. Um, alas, I can't even remember what the original question was. I just got fired up about the aesthetic. Oh, yeah. It felt no, funny it, to us. No, but it's interesting. It's, Couldn't imagine it would yeah. travel. Yeah, and, and as you say, I mean, it's still resonating now with, with a new audience. I mean, I have people, you know, people back in England who know nothing about Canada saying to me, oh, you're from the region where Trailer Park Boys was made. I mean, and as you say, I mean, it's an incredible thing that, that like all great comedy, you've basically got to 
create it in a way that that you think it is funny and then it will find its audience if you try and do it in focus group style and go what will reach the widest audience well, possible it just doesn't work i will share <laughs> with you uh an anecdote about how the the one thing about trailer park boys and indeed all great comedies that i've been lucky enough to work on uh letter kenny is another example jared kiso knows the show he knows the voice he knows the characters and you can pitch a joke and he'll say that's a great joke it's not our show in comedy right. it has to be one person's point of view obviously that's easier to execute as a stand-up in some ways um but in a collaborative environment you want people to feel included and like they can contribute ideas and the best idea wins but also ultimately it has to be one person's vision so for yeah. a corporate gig i was doing recently uh for reasons i won't bore you um the theme had the word b in it so i was in a b costume and uh, <laughs> after interviewing the CEO about the plans for the year, the kind of conclusion was, OK, so what you're saying is don't worry, be happy. And the <laughs> karaoke track kicks in and in a B costume, I sing, don't worry, be happy. Pretty simple premise. But when in your shed, in your shed, in my shed, in my backyard, yes, like with it. a smiling <laughs> like a husky. Thank you. Very invoice. <laughs> Like, um, I'm just so happy to be at the table and be able to walk into my back door. Like, that's a huge win in our business. If you're making a living in the arts, you're already in the top Absolutely. 5% of people. Um, Absolutely. But this corporate stuff I struggled with a little bit at first, as I'm sure you did. Alas, this don't worry, be happy was put to the brain trust. And it was kind of felt, well, you know what? People are worried, though. So should we say worry? Because we don't want to underline the fact that people are worried. So it became stay focused, be happy, which is sort of good, but it's not really what we meant. And it kind of entirely changes the idea. And then there was some discussion about whether telling people to be happy was toxic positivity. And whether that's what you want to put out. So suddenly I'm in a bee costume singing like happy birthday or oh Canada. Like it has it's a single entendre. It has nothing to do with a bee. Um, but I guess that underlines the idea of an idea being someone's vision. And Trailer Park Boys was always Mike Clattenburg's vision. And he, like yeah. Jared, was very quick to say, that's great. This is not, this works, this doesn't. And Mike's genius was we chewed a scene with Randy and Ricky. They're bickering and it's funny. And Mike would say, let's try it again. But Randy has a bag of sour cream and onion chips. And Ricky, you're trying to get them from him during the same scene. And that would just elevate it from <laughs> like hilarious to preposterous. And, and I think that was its magic. Yeah, that's it's so true. And it's interesting. I think you touched upon something fascinating there about the 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 corporate environment of jokes being workshopped is that one of the things that I mean, certainly as a virtual comedian, but certainly as a as a as a corporate comedian, full stop, and definitely as a as any type of performer um, doing what we do based out of any small place, but particularly the Maritimes, is that a lot of the time, probably more than almost anyone in a bigger city, when we're doing our thing, our our performing, our entertaining, our comedy work, the majority of the time we are dealing with people who don't work in comedy or indeed entertainment at all so you almost have to speak this different language when you're in a when you're in a, a writer's room or collaborating with you know with jerry d right there's a shorthand with, uh, the, it, yeah there's a shorthand and nothing needs to be and yet more 
so than almost any performer, any performer in LA or New York or London. The majority of the time, you or I are, are basically collaborating with people who have never once told a joke or written a joke professionally in their lives, but we're having to give them equal voice. How do you uh, kind of balance that with, uh, you know, your, your comedic sensibility? Well, I thought a lot about it in the early going because um, it's daunting. It's a daunting prospect. I did yeah. a Domino's meeting for 9,000 general managers and franchisees from 79 countries, a third of whom <laughs> English isn't their first language. So wow. I kind of embrace the challenge of trying to tap into what does this group of people with different geographical, socioeconomic, ethical, religious backgrounds, what is the common denominator for what is funny? And I'd be curious to hear your answer to this. My conclusion ultimately is silly. Silly is something that the world needs more of. Sight gags are something that are pretty bomb-proof and pretty universal. What I had to figure out in this context was uh, there's a Mark L. Wahlberg, um, not Mark Marky Mark the actor, but Mark L. Wahlberg hosts Antiques Roadshow and Temptation Island. We had the same manager when I lived in L.A., and he does a lot of this corp corporate hosting stuff. He's very high energy. He's the guy who's like... In a, in a room full of 5,000 people, um, hands on the buzzers. Oh, what do you guys think? Oh, hands up, everybody. Oh, clap if you think Dennis has it right. Oh, who thinks Amanda does? It's not my, my energy. Um, so I had to find out how, what I could bring to it. And I, I feel like um, I use a lot of sketch characters. I do a lot of kind of between two ferns style uncomfortable interviews. I do a lot of re-lyricing of songs, for example, I worked with a company called Relipsa and performed Total Relipsa the Heart. Um, I worked with a company that does gout, um, uh, gout medication. I sang Let It Gout. Uh, you know, like it's, it's pretty low hanging fruit and it's a one inch putt. But I find that the bar is refreshingly accessible. And more often than not, if if they are ingesting serious information, and, and a lot of times it's a cancer medication or they're doing real serious, important work and it's a lot to ingest, if the very sight of me means they can exhale for a moment, not pay attention, tune out, or kind of laugh to recharge the batteries, that does fulfill a useful function in the space of a four-day meeting. So I've kind yeah. of embraced the challenge and now I love it. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's, it's a unique skill set that, that almost goes against the idea, um, the, the kind of comedy club mindset of, you know, you've got to push the audience, you've got to, you've got to push them, you've got to challenge them. And it's like, no, 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 they, they, are, they are being challenged. Life challenges them. What we need to do is entertain them, make them laugh, and, and essentially by, by any means possible. And that isn't, you know, I mean, it's one of those things that people always say to me, you know, do, you know with corporate gigs, do you, try and, do you try and push it? And it's like, well, I mean, obviously push it if, it if I'm pushing it to be as funny as it can, but I'm never trying to do anything that would make anyone uncomfortable because that's not why I'm there or why they're there. Well, that's, I've, I've learned it's a subtle distinction, but the difference between a host and a comedian is a very important one. I see my role as a host. I, like a dinner party, I want people to leave having had a nice time. No one's feelings are hurt. And I, I learned quite quickly, uh, probably the hard way, that 
you figure out where the line is and don't cross it. You can dance close to it. And that's when it's a thrill for people. But you can undo a lot of goodwill in one poorly timed quip. And I know as a stand up working the club circuit, you're probably uh, your reflex instinct is to go for the joke and go for the jugular. This is not yeah. that. And especially right. I find if I take five or six uh, shots at myself out of the gate, then I've kind of earned the opportunity to take some gentle nerf pokes at people. But if you come out like uh, swinging at the CEO in the front row, people are like, what, what are you <laughs> doing? <laughs> you're, yeah, you're a guest. That's it. You haven't earned that. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. I mean, I, I mentioned to you recently that I saw the uh, the CBC film that you did for for Canada 150, and I I absolutely loved it on on so many levels. Thank you. But, I mean, the fact that it was both, you know, well, it was really really beautiful, and my I sat and watched it with with my kids. And again, it's one of those wonderful things that I I love with any form of comedy entertainment is when my seven year old is laughing as hard as my mother in law. You know, we're all it, all all three generations are, are enjoying it just as much. And I love the fact that it was. Uh, you know, historically correct, but also uh, the celebration of the country, but also, most importantly, when you are interviewing the people, it's a very, very uh, finite line between... um, you're being funny and you're getting laughs out of them, but you're also being respectful. And that's that was that... How did you learn that that kind of skill set? People underestimate how exhausting non-verbal... Uh, reinforcement is right doing streeters <laughs> right. is one of the most challenging aspects of this business especially in this part of the world where people are kind of retiring and shy just by nature like what's your favorite ice cream oh i i don't know i have to think about that <laughs> I, so the non-verbal like yeah, I couldn't nodding possibly smiling say, okay. you're doing great yeah i couldn't possibly say in case i yeah, i couldn't yeah. say rum and raisin in case i offended big strawberry <laughs> That's it. Yeah, and, and who really wants to hear what I have to say yeah, anyway? Exactly. <laughs> well, it's a part of the world where not too bad is the standard answer mm-hmm. to how are you today because anything more would be showing off. Right? Yes. To say like, I'm I'm doing great. That's like, whoa, easy yeah, there, big it, guy. No need to show yeah. off. Yeah. Um yeah, so, so true. I think it, it's the energy that goes into the, the nonverbal stuff that kind of makes you're creating a safe space where people feel like they can talk. And the other um, uh, uh, aspect of that that, it, that really works is silence. And it's the same right. technique you use as an interviewer. If people think the laws of social grace that apply to conversation apply to an interview. But if I ask you a question and you give an answer and I don't jump in right away, people are wired to think, <laughs> oh, oh, dear, I haven't delivered. Um, what else could I say? And that's often when you get the good stuff. Very true. But again, there's there's a unique skill set to that as well, where where you do leave the pause and then you turn to the camera and you arch an eyebrow. But that facial expression is very distinct in that it, it can't look like you are being rude about them it's a, it's a, the 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 facial expression is it might be quizzical it might be confused but 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 it's it's a unique moment and again this is one of the things that you nailed so well in that in that in that particular film was that you know at no point does it look like you are being mean about the person well and you can do that but the second mm-hmm. you do that you you're in uh you're in that category of oh okay this guy thinks he's better than everyone got it that's his right. kind of vantage point and it's just mm-hmm. not what I really want to put out there um, right. at this time. I'd rather, my friend worked at uh, Swiss Chalet 
And as a teenager, when he was being trained, they said, when you're offering people dessert, uh, say, would you like some uh, pecan pie? And while you're saying that, smile and nod at them. <laughs> so they will somehow <laughs> just be lured into, you know what? Suddenly I, I, I find myself wanting pie. Thank you. <laughs> and it's the same sort of uh, same sort of muscle yeah. reflex when you're doing streeters. Yeah, that's so true. Um, we uh, we were talking earlier about the, the the creation of Trailer Park Boys, but can you tell me a bit about the creation of your character J Rock and how that evolved, and um, you know how it was that you managed to kind of embody him so well and just you know, I mean, become him. Well, I went to school with those guys. I went mm. to school with a lot of J Rocks, and Mike Clattenburg uh, grew up in Coal Harbor. And went to Cole Harbor High, and there were a lot of kind of J Rock characters there. Um, we were both exposed to a lot of people from the Black community in Nova Scotia who just have an inherent sense of humor that is faster and funny. It's like the friend of mine was doing stand up in Newfoundland, and uh, the the club closed over there, and he said it's probably because the hecklers were a million times funnier than anyone on stage, just naturally. So we Newfoundlanders are funny. Um, these guys that we yeah. went to, to school with were so funny. And uh, Clattenburg worked at yeah. Sobeys in Coal Harbor with this guy named Arnold, who was this tall, skinny guy with an attitude. And the manager would come over and say, uh, Arnold, you need to wash the lettuce. And then he'd walk away and Mike would say, Arnold, aren't you going to do it? And he'd say, he ain't beating me, which meant if it came down to a physical <laughs> fist fight, the manager couldn't make Arnold wash the lettuce. And that stuff was somehow so funny to us that when we started working at CBC in Halifax, we would talk like that on the page system throughout the billing. Like, hey, Mike, you know what I'm saying? Meet me on the van, dog. Like echoing through the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation as people were trying to put together the supper hour news and things like that. Um, so it always right. made us laugh. Uh, he went to high school with Rob and JP, the guys that play Ricky and Julian. And they were living on Prince Edward Island, long, cold winters. They started making little videos to make each other laugh and sending them to Mike. So he had the idea of doing this show, and he said, you should play that character on the series. Um, but I was in a crazy car accident that year and was still walking with a cane. So I called Mike and said, you know what? I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be ready to um, play the character. I'm still walking with a cane. Broke my femur really badly. And he was like, just rock it. So in season one of Trailer Park Boys, J-Rock has a cane. It's never explained. It's just sort of baked into the character. And again, that's the, the genius of Mike. Like, just rock it. It's good advice for life. Yeah, totally. And again, it's one of those things, but it, him having that cane actually makes perfect sense for the character. Yeah, um, it looks like a great no one would choice. <laughs> when yes, in fact, it, does, it was just yeah. uh, an accident. <laughs> And obviously, I mean, you, you got into entertainment very, very young. Um, did you realize at that point, like, I mean, I guess I guess it's interesting because one of the things that I get asked a lot when I do talks in the Maritimes at schools and so forth is, you know, people thinking that they have to move away in order to get a job in entertainment or indeed any creative field. And one of the things I'm always trying to explain to people is, is that here, uh, in, a, in actual fact, it, the playing field is more level because there isn't a kind of a necessarily a well-worn path that you have to follow. You, you can forge your own. You can create your own job. Uh, trail in the woods here and, and do do whatever you want but you seem to realize that very early on how, how was that well in um a cliche as old as time 
it took going away to realize how good I had it here. Um, I started on right. Street Sense at 15. And as a TV yeah. school, it was um, original characters every week. It was celebrity impressions every week. It was learning to hit a mark and find the light and be a host mm-hmm. as myself on camera. It was kind of the um, Swiss army knife of TV <laughs> experiences. Um, the interesting thing is, and it took me a while to figure out when I got down there is when I turned 30, I'd been on CBC for 15 years and out of, uh, self-imposed exile and adventure, I went to America just to see, and they like to be able to categorize Mm -hmm. you there. Are you a host or are you a comedian or are you a sitcom actor or are you a dramatic actor? And the truth is I'd kind of done a little bit of all of those things but they, they don't really roll yeah. like that. You're one or you're the other. And Canada has allowed me to uh, be reimagined. Like I had a, a teen talk show called Jonovision. And after that, I was J-Rock on Trailer Park Boys. And after that, I was the guy on Mr. D. Um, <laughs> you can kind of do a page turn here. And people are open-minded enough, I guess, to embrace that. Whereas you can't really do that in the States. So it's been partially because I want to move on before the audience does or before I'm kind of uh, bored with a role. But I think the nice upside of that is that it's allowed me to have a few different chapters and I'd rather have a career than one role. Plus, I couldn't be J-Rock for a living. It's six (laughs) weeks of work in the summer. It's not enough money. it, It would be like painting with one color on your palette. So true. I mean, but what do you think it is about Canada and, and specifically, I mean, you know, Atlantic Canada that that doesn't pigeonhole people? Because, I mean, it's it's definitely the case in a creative field, like you say, like, you know, in London, I, I, I was either a stand up or something else. I couldn't be more than one thing. And yet here you can be, you know, you can be a, a magazine editor and a, and a stand up and no one questions that those two things might seem odd. And it, but that also does transcend all um, jobs and in, in employments. I mean, my f- first week here, I got, I got pulled over by a cop for, for speeding in a school zone. Cause I hadn't heard of I thought you were going to say for school driving zone on the left. I didn't realize. That. That's, speaking of cliches, I was hoping <laughs> no, that was why. I, no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should have done that just for fun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'd never, I mean, I'd never heard, <laughs> I'd literally never, because in England we don't have school zones because we figure if the kids are safely in school, why do we right. need to be all going backwards? See, that makes sense. Um, uh, but I got pulled over and the, and the cop, um, anyway, I, met, I met the cop anyway that weekend. Um, I was at a, uh, doing a stand up set at a wedding and I realized I recognized the DJ and they said, oh, he's one of the best uh, wedding DJs in New Brunswick. Anyway, and I, I couldn't figure out where I recognized him from and it was the cop. No. And yeah, and no one would ever question that, yes, he is, he's a cop, but he's also one of the best wedding DJs. That wouldn't be considered strange here whereas in england it's like well no no, no you, you can't do both what do you think it is about this, this region that that lets people and again i mean i i've come across many many uh examples like this where, <laughs> yeah and always like totally disparate jobs like you know the sales manager at lexus also manages uh one of the 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 most kind of shady bars right like, you know two completely disparate jobs um, and no one questions it. And I mean, part of it, I guess, is the, is the Atlantic Canadian attitude of whatever it takes, you do whatever it takes, like do what you got to do to to make a living. Um, but I think it that really is definitely it. And, feels and, freeing. And in a small town, I suppose there wouldn't be a wedding DJ 
if that cop didn't step up to also do that. Uh, all right. I can say is it's sort of how I'm wired. I, I don't know if it was bred into me because I live here or that's just who I am. But I will tell you this past year, especially, I was so happy that I do more than one thing for a living because the bottom dropped out of uh, TV in a way I never would. Th- this past year was the first year in 30 years that the bulk of my income didn't come from performing on television. I've had a steady presence on television for 30 years. And this year I um, uh, wrote a letter, Kenny, and uh, I have a trailer business as a side hustle and my trailers were rented on a film. So technically that counts Mm -hmm. as income from film and TV. But, (laughs) But the bulk of my income did not come from that. It came from flipping houses and um, you know, some, some other real estate holdings and, and things that I'm, I'm so thankful that I came up with some kind of steady sources of income because I, yeah. I could never have imagined this would fluctuate the way it did. So I'm thankful for that, uh, entrepreneurial yeah. spirit for sure. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a wonderful thing. I mean, at, at what point did you realize that, Obviously, you know, it was kind of March, April when everything, you know, the, the ass kind of fell out of everything. At what point did virtual begin to become something that you were willing to consider? And then at what point did you kind of start to embrace it? Well, I found um, the first wave, probably both of COVID and of things going virtual, uh, people had a much higher tolerance for cats showing up on your desk and half-eaten yes. sandwiches in the frame and <laughs> graphics made of uh, crayons. But yeah. I think it was about midsummer where people started to realize that, okay, this isn't funny. It should still yeah. look and feel like a show. And even if we're putting it on in Grampy's barn, it still has yeah. to be the best anyone can do. So um, from a corporate standpoint, they started to use control rooms. And again, I was so thankful for the Swiss army knife background that I have because I've done a lot of live TV broadcasting and this is very much the same. I'm getting cues. I'm getting countdown clocks. I have to uh, throw it to a guest. I have to do emotional page turns from I'm being silly to now here's a cancer patient. Like those are about the most abrupt 180s you can do tonally. But again, I think it's because I've been a host, not just a comedian. So I have those kind of tools in my kit. And so um, it was really a realization of, oh, I have a good opportunity here to uh, carve out a niche for myself because there aren't a lot of people. I, I always say my biggest virtue is that I can do a little bit of a lot of things. It's like the cocktail circuit, people who have kind of read the headlines, but they haven't read the whole article. Like I can sort of speak to many different facets of how a show like this goes but I can't really do a deep dive on any. There are better sketch performers than me. There are better hosts than me, certainly. I usually default to a kind of sketch host character, and it usually starts with my voice. When I start talking like that, you know, I'm not really being me. Um, Because I think (laughs) in my core, I'm probably a sketch performer. But uh, yeah, it was about the summer when I was like, okay, it's time to get a shed. The shed hit the fans. Yeah. Yeah, this this shed, the shed is very smart because I mean I'm I'm still having to do that thing of like right if it's a if it's a no holds barred virtual gig it's like okay the kids need to be upstairs in a soundproof room uh, I you know I never anticipated they would ever be listening in on on 
anything other than a, a clean show. Um, and then other times it's like having to remove them from the house. Um, but one of the things that I find, you, you mentioned there about how um, that point at which uh, it went from, you know, you would get booked for a virtual gig and people would be like, right, I need to download Zoom. And then suddenly, two months later, it's we're bringing in a tech team in Toronto who are going to be handling the, uh, the the tech side of things. And I mean, obviously, as you say, it was companies that realized very quickly that these things had to look and feel professional. Um I guess what I'm what, what I'm gearing up to here is is do you see a, a future in virtual events and virtual shows even after the whole world has been vaccinated? Well, I think there are competing uh, forces at work. If you look at um, the last gig I had in March that was canceled at the last minute, they had twenty five hundred attendees staying flying into Vegas and staying for six nights at the Aria Hotel. They had to feed everyone chicken breasts. Um, They had to, I think on the Thursday night, they typically rent a nightclub for their people to have an end of the night party. It's 400 grand. Um, That's a lot of dough. So for, for the companies to go virtual is great. They save a lot. I'll be curious to see what happens with like, real estate because i'm starting to hear of some companies that are seeing people working from home for the next two years so they're selling their office buildings why wouldn't they but the other side of that is for the attendees the human connection and the late night Hmm. sitting at the hotel bar and the chance to compare notes and uh, exchange best practices and things like that like Hmm. hopefully human connection will still be something that motivates us And I guess that's why, again, returning to this thread, it was suggesting that we'll want to play darts more and pick up (laughs) soccer games and find ways to be together if it's not going to be at the office. And that's kind of a nice notion. Yeah. No, it's so true. And I think that's I think that that's where I see it going as well, that that hopefully those things do come back. But equally, I, I that there's a balance because interestingly one of the bits of feedback that i've had from virtual shows and certainly in in summer last year when you know what it's like when you get onto a particular circuit like i mean i know you know in normal times i would kind of do one like nurses convention gig and then suddenly i'd have 12 bookings for different nursing things and uh you know you you end up on this kind of uh, hmm. particular uh, industry and uh, l- the last summer it was uh, it was t- t- teachers and school boards and one of the main messages i would get after the gigs would be from people who would say that prior to this they would always miss um they would never go on the uh, excursions or wellness events or you know office outings either because they're, they're shy or financial reasons maybe they care for someone at home and that these virtual gigs it was the first time they'd ever seen live comedy and, and essentially I mean, it is live and it's happening in the moment um but also that it was the first time they'd felt included because for whatever reason they don't like going to pubs they don't like going to theaters and suddenly now they felt like they were part of a group yeah and that really hit home because i would never have considered that but it kind of made make sense it does i mean i think people are trying the very best they can to to the point where i i know even in my own life i'm so busy being uh optimistic and up for it and hashtag pivoting and rallying and finding new ways to do my old job. I think there's got to be a word 
for the sentiment that you're allowing yourself to feel a bit disappointed. Um, I'm like I said, so optimistic by nature and no, this is, are you kidding? This is great. Um, In fact, it's better like that. That's my default is to find the bright side. But for example, we had a family trip planned to Hawaii in March because I had a gig in San Francisco. I know in the bigger picture, so many people have it worse than me having to cancel a trip to Hawaii. I know that people have lost loved ones and it's scary and people have lost their jobs and don't know how they're going to pay their rent. And uh, like there are much bigger fish to fry. And at the same time, I think it's okay to allow yourself a micro disappointment that your plans Mm -hmm. had to change. I know, again, I can't preface it enough by saying I know a lot of people will never get to go to Hawaii and I it's not lost on me what a privilege and trip of a lifetime that would be. But I think it it would be weird if deep down I didn't allow myself even a moment of, oh man, right? W- what yeah. is that called in the valley between Absolutely. devastation and unfailing optimism? I think it's not it's not genuine yes. to pretend you're not a little disappointed. I'm sure virtual performing is great, but you would probably rather be crushing it and feeling that role of live laughs coming back at you. Of course. And, and, and there's probably, there should also be a word for the exhaustion of trying to stay positive about it all, all of the time. Because as you say, I mean, you know, there are, there are the the benefits we've, we've talked about. I'm, I'm enjoying being at home more. I'm enjoying being around the family more. Um, But yes, I mean, all all of that boils down to, and you you put it very beautifully there. All of it comes back to the fact that I'm trying to be positive about a situation that is clearly far from ideal, even though obviously there's, you know, majority of people are far, far worse off and and suffering more. There is, there is that kind of innate sadness, which, um, which we're, which we're all trying to kind of uh, keep at bay all the time. And I wonder at what point there is that kind of tipping point. Yeah. Like I said to my mm. wife last week, I, I, I always enjoy the day is best that uh, my mind is tired, my hands are tired, like my brain is tired. I do a, a little bit of, of everything in the run of the day. And one of the reasons that I like living in rural Nova Scotia is that I can do that. Today already I've yeah. gone for a walk. I've enjoyed this conversation. I shoveled horse poo in the barn. I feel like... <laughs> I'm at my best when I have that combo. But on yeah. our walk the other day, I said out of nowhere, remember New York? As if it doesn't exist anymore or the option of us going there will never return. And some days when you see tens of thousands of Alabama Clemson Tide fans uh, celebrating on one city block, it feels like we will never return there. But yeah. the one thing I know to be true is that the way humans are wired, the rearview mirror has a way of condensing things into, you know, the tiniest little particle. So I know once this is over, it will feel like it was the blink of an eye, but not unlike the weather in this part of the world. I think it's pretty natural <laughs> that some days it's sunny in the morning and cloudy in the afternoon. Yeah. And that's uh, that, sh- that. That will be a wonderful name for your autobiography. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Sunny in the morning, um, cloudy in the afternoon. 
That's absolutely beautiful. Um, on that, um, and and I'll, I'll I'll close with this because I felt like it, it it comes back to one of the things that that I'm kind of fascinated by most about your career. You know, the fact that that thing of having to be of 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 needing to stay upbeat. Um, of course, in normal times when you are out and about and on the road and working and having to kind of be um, on. On, not necessarily on, but to kind of convey this this happiness. Um, what do you think is different about the nature of, of Canadian celebrity to kind of being recognisable in any other part of the world? Well, I guess the most succinct way I can put it is I can't even say the phrase Canadian celebrity without giggling. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> if the subcategory is Canadian celebrities who didn't have to go to the States to get validated, it's a pretty <laughs> short list. Like right. Rick Mercer, undoubtedly, Gordon Pinsent, um, like Alan Doyle is probably on that list. Like people that, w- you know, most people would recognize a picture of them. It's a yeah. pretty and you're short on that list. list. I don't know if I'm and- on that list. Yeah, 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 you're definitely on that list. In the, I would, at the very least, I imagine there's almost any room you can walk in in the country where, at the very least, someone in that room is going to go. There's that guy uh, from where that thing. Yes, yes, and that that celebrity. That 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 is exactly what a celebrity is. But do you know what? In the same way that the cop was the DJ, I'm going to say conservatively, fifty percent of the time, people will say, "Oh, I know who you are. Oh, you do? Yeah, you went to camp with my cousin Trina." Like, no, no, I'm not that guy. People know that I'm some guy. They just can't always quite put their finger on which guy. And that's just fine. I am extremely social in my work. I'm extremely private and retiring in my real life. That's why I live in the middle of a field with no doorbell. Because the doorbell would greatly decrease our chances of pretending we're not home. (laughs) <laughs> that's beautiful and that must be a wonderful thing like when you get stopped in a grocery store and people go oh i know you you're the guy with the trailers like like yeah, yeah, that, exactly. that's maritime celebrity well yeah. in the country i'm the guy who's famous for not knowing how to do a single thing for himself because everyone barters like tell you what i'll do your plumbing you do my electrical i'll fix your car you do my roofing all i have to <laughs> offer is hosting and nobody right. needs that done well, yeah, I mean, right now, but, you know, let's face it, everyone has a kids party and you have a bee costume now, <laughs> no so kidding. you can turn up. And <laughs> I also have a lobster costume. Oh, dear. There was a hashtag pivot I did not see coming. Children's That's birthday it. parties. An entire, you have an entire wardrobe costume, a uh, wardrobe department in your shed that is also now basically, it's, it's, a, it's a venue in every single big city in the world. Do you know what? If you ask how my work is going, it's not too bad. <laughs> and that is about the best anyone could say in this unprecedented time. That is beautiful. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time, insights, and uh, honestly, that was uh, absolutely magical. I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Uh, keep in touch, and uh, let's do this again sometime. I would love that. Next time, the tables will be turned. Okay, beautiful. I will take that challenge, and I will bring some of the costumes that I have uh, in my basement. Yes. (laughs) Happy days. Uh, Have a great day, and we'll speak again soon. You too. 
Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. Be sure to follow Jonathan on Twitter at TorrensJonathan and go to taggartontorrens.ca to subscribe to their awesome podcast. Further details can be found on the Edit website, maritimeedit.com. I will see you next time. Podstarter. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.